The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of 1 Peter. Uh, While you're turning there, I just want to say a word of thank you to Ethan uh, for wearing so many hats today. Uh, You can tell in my voice, um, I've got something going on, and uh, I don't know exactly what it is. I'm trying to keep my distance from as many as possible, uh, not because I'm angry with anyone. Don't start that rumor. Uh, It's just I don't want to give you what I've got if it is contagious. So um, I'm I'm very thankful that Ethan was able to kind of fill in while Matt and Allie are are away at a marriage conference uh, and and just allow me to kind of sit and then come up and and do this. So thank you, Ethan, for that. Today, uh, we're going to sort of pick up part two of the sermon that I started last week. Last week we were told in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 13 uh, through about verse 16 um, that we were to, to live in hope and that we were to live in holiness. And today we're going to pick up one that doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, we're told in this passage today to live in fear. You know, there are some things that make sense that, that we should be afraid of. Um, I don't know what those are for you. Uh, heights is, is one of those things for me. I am not a, a fan of, uh, of being up high. Uh, I used to be a youth minister, and uh, we'd go to uh, amusement parks uh, as part of our annual outings, and, and uh, the kids would always want to get me up on the highest thing possible and, and just watch me because it was more entertaining probably for them to watch me than it was for them to actually ride the ride. And I don't like heights. Uh, perhaps maybe for you it's something else. Um, it's, Back around Christmas, uh, I was entertained one day. Um, I probably should confess and repent of this, but I watched the UPS guy deliver a package to my front door. And, and I have a little dog. In fact, it's not really my dog. It's my daughter's dog. And uh, he absolutely adores my daughter, but he is all of about 15 pounds. He's solid white, uh, and uh, he would never hurt anyone, but he will let you know he's there. And um, this UPS driver... Uh, dropped his package off uh, on the front porch, and lo and behold, uh, when he turned around, Whiskers, isn't that an intimidating name, um, was, was there. And Whiskers began to let him know that he was there. And I watched this uh, pretty, big, pretty big dude, looked like he was you know, 6'2", 6'3", kind of a hulking kind of a guy, all of a sudden turned into this scared, uh, just, you know, shell of, uh, of a person as he tried to make it back through my yard to his truck and avoid this little white 15-pound dog. Uh, and if I only, I thought, if he only knew, if he only knew, you know, what this dog was capable of, uh, he would just shoo him away and, and go back to the truck. But, uh, you know, sometimes we're afraid of things that we shouldn't be afraid of. But the Bible here calls us to be afraid of God. And this doesn't seem to make sense because we're told over and over again that God has redeemed us and he's brought us to himself and we have no reason to fear. So today I want to tackle this subject and hopefully um, see uh, what it means to fear God. Peter's going to give us at least two reasons. I'm hoping that my throat will hold out, that my voice will hold out. I hope I don't have to shut this down early, Um, but that's the goal is to look at kind of what is this fear of God and and these two motivators or two reasons why we should fear. So if you'll follow along with me, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. 
Peter says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In other words, all your life. With, with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Today, I just want to deal with this paradox. Conduct yourselves in fear throughout the time of your exile. This doesn't seem to make sense. We were just told to live in hope, right? You live in hope. You hope in what God has already done. All that fear has been taken away. Aren't we told? Doesn't 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 tell us that perfect love casts out fear? So why here does Peter tell us that we are to fear, to conduct ourselves in fear? Well, we have to ask the question, what, is he, what does he mean? And sometimes when we look at these paradox, uh, these statements that seem to contradict one another but hold out for us truth in Scripture, sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it. And it might help for us to kind of step back and to look at it through the lens of our enemy. How does does Satan attack us at this point of this command to fear? Well, to look at this, uh, it was helpful to me to see this and go back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan strikes the first man and the first woman at this point of fearing God. In, in verses 1 through 5, Genesis 3 tells us, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, that should rightfully strike some fear of God into the heart of Adam and Eve. Satan continues and he says, You will not surely die, but God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We have an an enemy that um, is constantly expending great energy, just like he did with Adam and Eve, to get us not to fear God. He says to us, just like he said to them, you will not surely die. This is the, the lie that he tells over and over again. We have an enemy that is constantly whispering in our ears, go ahead. This won't make any difference. If you choose to go this route, it will be inconsequential. So just do it. Just do what you want. You don't have any reason to fear God. This is a lie that is is as old as time that Satan continues to tell us. You know, I I grew up in East Tennessee, and I grew up going fishing in the rivers of East Tennessee with my dad. My dad was not a big fisherman, but I used to beg him to take me fishing. And in the rivers of East Tennessee, uh, there are a few things that you can catch, trout being one of them. 
And I was never a fly fisherman, but we could, you could go and you could take a, uh, you could go to any of the little gas stations on the side of the road and you could buy um, kernel corn in a little can and take that and, and open that can and bait your hook with that, with that kernel corn and cast that in the river. And in just a matter of just a little time uh, growing up, we would catch all kinds of trout. We would bring those home and we would, we would eat those trout. You know, when I was a kid, it was really easy. You could cast the line in and pull out trout all day long. But somewhere along the way, about my teenage years uh, into high school, it became really, really hard to catch trout in the streams of East Tennessee. Well, why? Because there was a paper mill in North Carolina that decided it wouldn't be a big deal if they dumped their waste into the river. And whatever was downstream of that, it, it wouldn't have any consequences. It would be inconsequential to the life in that, that river. And little did they know that by doing that, they were taking the joy of all the boys and girls just like me. You know, this is what Satan does over and over again with us, is he tries to get us not to fear God. You don't have to worry about being holy. Holy? Are you kidding me? You don't, you're not surely going to die. This will be inconsequential. Go ahead and do this thing. We also have an enemy that expends a lot of energy to get us to fear the wrong things. Not just not to fear, but to get us to fear the wrong things. He said to, to Eve in the garden, Has God said you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? In other, in other words, Satan came to her and began to cast doubt on the goodness of God in her mind to say... Is, is God not being stingy that he won't let you eat? Satan said to Eve in the garden, when you eat, God, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Well, that sounds like a good thing, right? And Eve contemplates this, and she begins to think, well, maybe he's onto something. And Satan's age-old lie is not only you have no reason to fear, but also you should be afraid of missing out. Satan spends a, lot of, uh, spends a lot of energy getting us to fear the wrong things. Satan has not changed. He still makes insinuations about God. He implies that, that God is withholding from us. He whispers lies in our ears that he says things like, you know, you're missing out on all the world has to offer. If you follow God, I mean, you're missing out. You don't want to miss out, do you? Satan whispers these lies and he says to us, you know, God's just being stingy. God's just hoarding these things for himself. God doesn't want you to have any fun, so you don't want to be the only one not having fun, do you? And this is the age-old lie that Satan tells us. So it helps perhaps to see how Satan attacks or approaches this command for us to live in fear is he spends a lot of time getting us not to fear God and to fear the wrong things. Well, that helps somewhat, but still this is a paradox because we're told to live in hope and we're told to live in fear, and those two things don't go together. If you live in hope, and this, remember our definition, the biblical definition of hope is this confident expectation that this will indeed happen, well, that should cast out fear. So there's this seeming paradox, and we have been told repeatedly 
all sorts of things as what fear of God actually means. That, well, certainly it means reverence, it means respect, it means honor, but it can't mean fear, can it? It can't mean really be afraid. The reality is the Bible means exactly that. The Bible means reverence and fear and, 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 uh, and honor and all those things. It doesn't mean less than that, but it doesn't mean less than to actually be afraid either. This is the way the Bible uses it. It's pretty clear the Bible uses fear to mean be afraid. Martin Luther, I want to remind you, back when we were walking through Exodus, I, I told you about these two types of fear that Martin Luther helped us to understand this, this concept of fearing God. And I want to just repeat these for you today. Martin Luther spoke of, of these two kinds of fear, servile fear and filial fear. Servile fear is the fear that causes sheer terror, either because you don't know the character of the one who might be a threat to you, or because you do know the character of the one who might be a threat to you. So a couple of examples would be, um, travel to the Middle East, you are a believer, uh, and I don't mean to cast dispersions or, or, or draw with broad broad lines, but you, you are kidnapped by, uh, by um, members of ISIS, you don't have to worry. You don't have to wonder what they intend to do with you. They, you know what they intend to do with you, so you know their character, and you should be afraid. There's an, another example, though. If you're in Greenville one night, and you park in a parking garage, you come out, and stores have closed, and, and it's dark, and you come out to your, your car, and you're walking through the garage, and someone begins to walk behind you and follow you, and they get closer and closer. Well, you don't know their character. You don't know them. You don't know who they are. You don't know if they intend for you evil or if they're just simply trying to get quickly to their car. You don't know, but you're afraid of both. You're afraid of both the member of ISIS and the person who's following you that you don't know. This is servile fear. And Martin Luther said, servile fear is the kind of fear that comes naturally to us in a fallen world when we know that there are those that mean us harm. So this is natural. You know, that fear that UPS driver experienced that day when my 15-pound yapper dog, uh, you know, chased him back through the yard, that's servile fear. And it's natural because, if we're honest, sometimes the little yappers are the worst, right? I mean, they will, they will eat your ankles off, right? So that's all he knew. That's a natural fear. But I don't think that's what God's calling us to. Because God's not saying... Conduct yourselves in fear because you don't know my character. Or he's not saying conduct yourselves in fear because you know my character and you know I mean you harm. God tells us he never means us harm, that he's always good in all that he does. Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for, those, for good for those who love him or are called according to his purpose, right? God's always good. So we don't feel, fear him in this servile way. We instead fear him with this filial fear. It's the fear you would have for a father. And, and this may be a touchy subject for some of you because maybe you grew up with a father who was hard on you and maybe abusive. And that's not the type of father that we are talking about. We're talking about a father who is a loving father. And we're still called to, to fear that father. You, you know that he means only good for you. Only good for the son or daughter. He will protect, he will nurture, he will love, he will provide, he will discipline when necessary. You know, when I was growing up too, my dad did not have the same fear that I had of heights. My dad seemed to thrive off heights. 
Uh, my dad grew up in, um, up in the mountains. I've, I've told you this before. And um, it was one of the last times we were up there. We drive along those roads that just follow the rivers. And um, the only way that they had oftentimes to cross the river was they would string up swinging bridges across the river. Anybody ever seen these? There's still some of them that exist there. I don't know that I would trust any of them, but they're there. My grandfather fell through one um, and, and fell into the river below one time. But my dad would, he just, he didn't, he wasn't bothered by, by heights at all. And um, my dad would get me on the top of the Ferris wheel. And what do you think my dad would do when it would stop? Now, now, son, it's going to be okay. No. <laughs> my dad would start rocking that thing, you know, and I'm going out of my mind. You know, he had to, like, bribe me to get me on the thing anyway, you know. We went to Rock City that time and got out on that swinging bridge, and my dad's out there, and he's just swinging that thing back and forth. And, and, and you know, it's a wonder that I'm alive here today. Um, we went to Magic World growing up as a kid, which was before Dollywood. It was before Silver Dollar City. It was in Pigeon Forge growing up. And it, they had these high uh, waterfalls, man-made things. And Dad would take us as little kids. I, I'll never forget this. He would take us. And he thought he was thrilling us. And he would pick us up like this, and he would swing us out over those waterfalls. Today, he would be arrested, right? He thought he was thrilling me, but he was absolutely just traumatizing me. But you know what I never thought? I never thought, it's only because I've been good today that my dad didn't let go of me. I never thought... My dad, one of these days, is going to have it up to here with me, and he's going to actually let go of me. I never thought my dad was actually trying to turn the the bucket of the Ferris wheel over. I knew my dad loved me, and there was this fear mixed with love that I trusted him. See, you don't fear the father with the same fear that you have for the terrorist. You fear the father with a Fear that that knows the loving character of the Father, that he means good for you, that he will protect, nurture, and discipline you. You know, Peter provides here, if, if if even still, we probably can't get our minds around this fully understanding what he means by conduct yourselves with fear. And so Peter here helps us to understand. We've we've looked at how does Satan attack us in this? the difference between filial and servile fear. But then Peter says, maybe you're still struggling to understand this. And he gives us two reasons. And these are, this is the heart. This is the meat of the, our passage today, okay? So these two reasons, I, I pray, will help us to understand and will propel us to conduct ourselves in fear. They are, number one, the impartial judgment of God. The Bible here says, if you call on him as father, that sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, do we stop and just contemplate what it means that we get to call God father? And that's, that's an amazing thing. But he's, he doesn't stop there. He says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves in fear throughout your exile. Too often, we want, to, to, we want God to be our Father without being our judge. We want the luxury of being able to, to live any way that we want, knowing that our daddy is sitting behind a judge's bench. That we can live however we want, we can do whatever we want to do, that it will be inconsequential because at the end of the day, my dad's in there. 
Oh, my dad, he's, he'll, you know, I'm, I'm his son. He'll, he'll just look the other way. But notice that little word that describes his judgment. He is impartial. It's a word that, that means without respect of persons. It means that he doesn't have any favorites. Paul Tripp says, We need to live in a reverential awe of the reality that our Father, as gracious and loving and kind as he is, is also a judge. The illustration I'll give to you, I've talked a lot about my dad today. I'm just going to give you another one about my dad. Um, When I was in fourth grade, uh, digital watches became the big thing. I don't know why, but they they became the big thing in fourth grade. And and everybody, we were getting these digital watches. And some came out and they were actually calculators, which, you know, know, it was really cool if you had a teacher that didn't, didn't know what that was, you know. You could, uh, you could get by with some things in math class, you know. But anyway, uh, it's before the days of smartphones. You, you, those of you who are younger, you're looking at me going, what? You know, anyway, before, before the, the Apple watches, any of that. These digital watches became a thing. And I begged my parents for a digital watch. I wanted this because I wanted it to beep. I wanted to have the ability to set an alarm and all these things. And so finally, for Christmas one year, they got me this digital watch. And I wore this thing proudly to school. Said, yeah. My watch, you know, and walk around in fourth grade with all of my swagger that I pretended I had in fourth grade. And uh, at recess, we would play football. And um, I wasn't very good at football, but I, I enjoyed getting out there at recess and play. Well, I played football, had the best time out there playing recess, came back in, it was sitting in class, looked down and realized, where's my watch? My watch is gone. I was devastated. My watch, my brand new watch that I had just gotten was gone. Looked for it, couldn't find it, went home that night, told my dad, Dad, I don't know what happened to it. I was playing football outside. Maybe it came off out there. I expected my dad in that moment to to say, Son, you got to learn to be more responsible with your things. Do you know what my dad did? My dad said, Let's go. Let's get in the car. Let's go look for it. My dad went down there to that field at, at the Sevier County Primary School, and he went out there, and he just he walked up and down. I said, Dad, we're playing out here in this field. He just, he just walked back and forth. And he has important stuff to do, but he just walks back and forth. And he walked for what seemed like maybe an hour, and, and it got darker and darker. And just as it got dark, I thought, there's no hope. It's not here. My dad came up to me, and he said, is this it? And I was absolutely thrilled. I was blown away. My dad had found my watch. And I received this just gracious gift of a dad who would just lay aside everything else to look for my watch because it was important to me. Do you know that that's the same dad, though, who told me repeatedly to go cut a switch? I, I can still... I can still hear the sound of a belt passing through loops uh, in the reverse, right? I know what that sounds like. I I still remember the day when I thought I was big enough and bad enough and tough enough when I was around 17 years old that I could challenge my dad. And I I remember putting my hands on my dad's chest and pushing him and and then realizing when I picked myself up from behind the console television... um, that I wasn't as big as I thought I was, right? The same dad who would scour that field 
because of this was important to me is the same dad who lovingly disciplined me when I needed it. He was both father and he was judge. And this is how we need to see our God. That yes, he is father and he says, come to me. Bring all your burdens to me. Call on me as father. I am truly father to those who call on me through my son. But I am also judge, so be afraid. The second reason that Peter gives us in this passage is not just the impartial judgment, but the precious blood. It says there in in, uh, those verses, he says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. I mean, this seems like a non-reason to fear, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't, shouldn't, you know, contemplating and thinking on the, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, shouldn't that remove fear? Isn't that what Romans 8, 1 is, is all about? That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Shouldn't this remove any fear from us? You know, it's, it's kind of like saying, be afraid because you've been made free. It doesn't make sense. It's like saying, be afraid because what was meant to kill you has killed someone else in your place. This doesn't make sense. It seems like a non-reason to fear, so we, we have to press into this and say, what is Peter saying? I want to give you an illustration that I've, I've borrowed from John Piper, okay? Um, and and it's, it's a good one. I can't improve on this. He tells a story. He said, suppose you're a, you're a father and you have an 18-year-old daughter. And you, you love your daughter, and one day your daughter's kidnapped. You receive a, a, a note or a call, and, and uh, those who are holding your daughter um, tell you, don't go to the police. Gather up $1 million. Bring it to this place. Set it here. Your daughter will walk out. She will take it to us, and then your daughter can come to you free. Well, you probably should go to the police, but, you know... You're scared. You love your daughter. You don't want anything to happen to you. You're taking them at their word. So you're not a rich man. You're not wealthy at all. But, you know, you love your daughter. So you begin to sell everything you have. You sell your house. You sell your cars. You sell any jewelry that your wife has. I mean, you sell everything. You go out and you borrow money. And, you know, somehow you scrounge up a million dollars. And, and you, you put it in this bag, and you bring it out here, and you sit it in this place where they told you to sit it at this time, and you see, you, you go back to your place, and you see your daughter come walking out, and, and you're so happy to see her, and she comes, and she takes the bag, and she walks back, and when she gets back to her kidnappers, instead of handing it to them and walking or running to you, she throws her arm around her kidnapper, turns and looks back at you and says, Sucker! And walks away with her kidnapper. I think that's what's meant here when Peter says, conduct yourselves in fear throughout the time of your exile because you've not been ransomed with silver or gold or anything perishable. You've been ransomed with this precious blood of Jesus Christ. There is an element for us that we should we should 
Be afraid of so offending and trampling under our feet the blood of Christ that it causes us to want to live in holiness. That we would not be guilty of symbolically walking away with our kidnapper and yelling sucker in the face of God. We should fear treating the awesome love of the Father expressed in the precious blood of His own Son like that. And so we look at these two reasons to fear the the impartial judgment and the precious blood. And and on one hand, we have something incredibly scary, the the judgment of God. On on the other hand, we have something incredibly precious, the, the blood of Christ. And we should be afraid of offending either one of those. We should be afraid of of trampling one under our feet or we should be afraid of of treating him and presuming on his character. What this passage is, is saying is that we can be guilty of doing either of those. That this is entirely possible for us and these should become motivators. I shared with you earlier, you know, that um, I'm I'm really kind of scared of heights. It's so bad. In fact, if I'm in a movie theater and I'm watching a scene where it's it's you know precarious and it's it's this scene of heights, you know, I I mean, I'm kind of like I'm scooting back in my chair. You know, I can't get back in my chair far enough. I mean, it's just in me. Well, if I go hiking, if I go climbing or something like that, do you know what I never do? The higher I climb. I don't ever try to get further away from the thing I'm climbing. Why? Because at that moment, the one thing that terrifies me becomes the one thing that can save me. And so I try to get as close to it as I possibly can. If I'm winding around a mountain trail, I'm hugging the inside, right? I'm hugging the mountain. And that's the point Peter's trying to get across to us is that we walk with God in such a way that we fear him by retreating into him because that's the only place where all fears are cast away. John Piper said it this way, let that fear drive you to the place that casts out all fear, namely the fatherhood of God and the blood of Jesus. To which I would ask you this question today. Which of these, and this is where I'll finish, but which of these, the impartial judgment or the precious blood, which of these are you more prone to offend against? Are are you more prone to offend against the judgment of God? Do you you naturally resist his authority over you? Do you set yourself up as the ultimate authority Do you live as if the only one that you have to answer to is you? Then, friend, let this passage be a reminder to you that he is not only your father, he is impartial judge. That you are not the authority of your life that you set yourself up to be. No matter what swagger you think you have, you you are nothing in comparison to him. He is impartial judge. He plays no favorites. So submit yourself to him. Conduct yourself in fear of him. Not in such a way that you would run away from him. You know, if you can go on living unholy uh, in this life, doing whatever you want to do, as if there is no judge but, but you, then the judge who judges impartially when it comes to the end will look at the evidence of your life and he will come to the only sensible conclusion 
and he will declare you to be guilty. It's not that your works, your unholiness earns you hell or that your goodness earns you. I probably should say this way. It's not that your goodness earns you uh, salvation, but it's that he will look at your life and say, the, the evidence doesn't weigh here. It doesn't match what you say you believe. And that's why we're called to live in fear. John Piper, again, and I'll just give you these quickly, helps us to see the difference between unholy and holy fear. Unholy fear runs away from the judgment on, on sin and looks for safety in excuses and moral religious camouflage, saying things like, he has no right to judge me. I'm no, I'm no worse than anybody else. That's unholy fear. Holy fear, though, runs away from the sin itself and looks for safety in the pardoning and empowering grace of God. It says, you know, he's, he's judge and he has a right to be judged. One day he will pronounce judgment on me. And it says, oh God, I'm dependent on your grace alone to save me. Unholy fear runs from the consequences of sin. Holy fear runs from sin itself, seeing it as ugly, awful, and terrifying. Unholy fear leads me away from God. Holy fear leads me running to God because He alone can keep me from falling. Unholy fear ignores the preciousness of the ransom and and trembles at the judgment of God. But holy fear cherishes the ransom and trembles at the prospect of insulting the goodness of the one who paid it. Are Are you more prone to offend against the impartial judgment of God or are you more prone to offend against the the precious blood of Jesus do you repeatedly find yourself running off into futile ways because you have lost sight at at the awesome price that was paid for your, your ransom in so doing I would say to you that you treat his sacrifice as common that's why he includes here that you weren't ransomed with things like silver or gold that are going to pass away. Remember, he talked about this earlier, and he said, you know, even though gold is purified, it's going to perish in the end. And he says, don't, don't, don't think that you've been ransomed with something that's going to perish. You've been ransomed with this precious blood. Don't treat it as common. Instead, gaze long and hard at the suffering of Jesus on your behalf. Drink it in as if you alone are the only one he died for. And we know that's not true. He's he's died for all who would ever believe. But we 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 can say, if we are children of God, that we can apply this in such a personal way that it's it's as if God died for you because he did die for you. Don't squander it. Don't, don't throw your arm around your kidnapper. Don't play around with the murder weapon. Don't run off after futile ways. Wrap your mind around the fact that God did that for you. Romans eleven twenty says, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud. But fear. Church, 
I would implore you today, even though we may not be able to figure out all of what it means for us to live in hope and live in fear, I would implore you to press into the place. Press into God, fearing Him, so that it drives out all other fear in your life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. God, I thank you for your sustaining power. Lord, I thank you for your word. God, I pray, Lord, now that you would take the the passage that has been before us, the sermon that has been preached, and God, that you would apply it to our hearts and minds. Lord, that you would capture us, Lord. God, that you would cause us to understand and to walk in fear. Lord, to live there. Not Not in the type of fear, Lord, the unholy fear that drives us away from you, but God, help us to live in fear of your impartial judgment and of offending against your precious blood so that, Lord, it leads us to live holy and to live in hope. God, I pray that you would do it, Lord, for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you an opportunity to reflect and respond. Um, Maybe the Lord has shown you something particular today. Um, Whatever it is the Lord is leading you to, uh, just use this, this time as built in to respond. Perhaps you need to come and pray. Uh, perhaps you need to go and pray with others in a prayer room to my right, to your left. Whatever it is that the Lord is calling you to today, whatever he's shown you today, I'm going to ask that you would do business with him. Um, I'll be down here on the front. I, I'd love to speak with you. Uh, If you need me to help you, I'll be there to, to help you. So let's respond to him as we worship.
I just want to say a word of thank you uh, for putting up with this voice today. Thank you for that. Forgive me for, um, for not sticking around and shaking hands. I'm going to slip out. Uh, we're going to vote in, in just a, a few minutes uh, on Matt as our uh, new youth minister. And so Ethan's going to uh, kind of play a song to give us a time to transition. If you are visiting with us as a guest, uh, we're so glad that you're here. If you have not filled out that blue card there in, in the seat back, please do so. Uh, and if you want to use this as an opportunity for you to kind of slip out and uh, give that to one of our greeters, uh, we have a gift to say thank you for, for being our guest today. Uh, again, I would normally kind of stay around um, and love to meet you, but I don't want to give you what I have if I have something, okay? So it's enough that I'm standing up here speaking at you. Uh, hopefully I have not uh, given anything airborne today. If, um, um, if you get sick, it wasn't my fault. Um, but uh, so thank you for being here. Um, and I just want to challenge church family Go and make much of the Lord. Uh, live your life in such a way that you fear him by pressing into him to make much of him. Okay? Let me pray, uh, and then we'll transition out. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.